session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or like my page on Instagram, uh, or follow me on, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. I wanted to make another announcement for the cruise that I'll be doing March 9th through March 12th with commercial travel. We'll be going to Ensenada, Mexico. Very excited for it. Just a little over a month away. It should be a lot of fun. Um, We'll have some other professionals on board to share their expertise, but I'll be doing a few seminars on topics like dating, relationships, success, uh, and also some question and answer sessions as well. So hope to see you there March 9th through the 12th with commercial travel. You can check my social media for more information, but we'll hope to see you there uh, next month. Uh, before I do the book for this week, the book for the past uh, for the next week is The Science of Sin, The Psychology of the Seven Deadlies. And why they are so good for you by Simon Laham. The Science of Sin should be an interesting book. I have not read it before, but of course the title did grab my attention and was interested to see what the research is that they're talking about and what it does say about us and uh, why we do things that are considered sinful and maybe get a better understanding of that. But the book for this past week, looking at a different aspect of our psychology, was Sway, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior by Ori and Ram Brofman. And uh, they are brothers. One of them is a psychologist and one is uh, it's a business person. And it made me think of me and my brother, me the psychologist and him um, with his MBA and PhD in economics. So maybe one day I told him we'll write a book ourselves. Uh, but this book is looking at the irresistible pull of irrational behavior and this idea that Although we'd like to think we are rational and we're doing things for the right reasons, oftentimes we do things that are a little bit puzzling and hard to understand or explain by purely saying we are rational. So, of course, we are rational and we are emotional, or in a way we are both at the same time. We can't even really separate them. Uh, but this book was looking at some of the common mistakes, you could say, that we make uh, as human beings. and. To begin with, I also think we have to look at this idea of rational, what that even means, because we hear that said a lot. People say in economics, are people rational or are they not rational? And generally speaking, from an economics perspective, I actually wish my brother was here to explain this much better than me, but by rational, they usually mean what's in your best financial interest oftentimes. Not always, but that can be one of the ways they measure it. So if there is a study looking at something and there's money involved, if you make a decision where you don't make as much money or get as much money in the transaction or situation, they would consider that irrational because the rational human should do what's in their best interest, which is to get the most money or to get the most of whatever it is. 
Um, but I think that definition of rational, of course, is subjective. It's not an objective rationality that we're talking about. And that's why I think there is a move more towards behavioral economics and recognizing that as human beings, there's so much that goes into all the decisions that we make than just some kind of rational thinking. And related to that, uh, this idea that we think we know why we're doing what we're doing or why we like what we like. I talked about that a few weeks ago in the book, The Elements of Taste, but we have to be real with ourselves and recognize that oftentimes we don't know why we do what we do, why we like what we like, and lots of other decisions that we make. Um, very often we'd like to think we like what we like because we have good taste, and that's what the, the book Elements of Taste was talking about. But we don't know what it is, and I might touch on that a little bit later. But they go through the book, the authors, looking at several different pulls or things that sway us to be irrational um, throughout the book. The, the first one they talk about is loss aversion. And we find that human beings, we really don't like to lose. And sometimes because we're so wary or so afraid to lose or so not wanting to take a loss, we'll keep making a bad decision. And they talk in the book, for example, of people who are investing in stocks or have a business and they start to lose money, but because they don't want to lock in the loss, they're still chasing the win or hoping that somehow they can get back to even. And it's funny, I was just in Las Vegas this weekend, so you see people doing that a lot with gambling too. They just want to get back to even because they don't want a loss. So they keep betting and they bet more and bigger and make stupider decisions really in the sense that they're risking more money than they probably would like to have if you ask them when they were calm and not in the sway of what's going on. But they make bad decisions because they want to get to even. They don't want to accept the loss. Whereas it's better to sometimes just accept, okay, things didn't go well. I lost money or I lost whatever it might be but let me make the best decision for myself now. But they show that very often we do make bad decisions, like people who won't sell a stock, even though it's clear that it's likely going to go down. Or they share a story of one investor who, if he did sell his stock, he would be able to live very comfortably for the rest of his life. But because it had gone down a little bit, he kept saying, I want to wait till it goes back till where I had it at the maximum, and then I'll sell. Uh, that unfortunately he lost all of it at the end. I think he left was left with pennies, basically, when he had millions of dollars. A very sad story, but shows how uh, averse we are to loss. We don't want to lose. Another interesting one they talk about is value attribution. And this can relate to the issue of taste I was talking about before. But this idea that when we are told something about someone, or when we see someone in a certain kind of place, it affects what we think of them. So if you find out a piece of music was composed by Mozart, you're probably going to hear it very differently than if I said some six-year-old who's never played music made this melody. You're probably going to think that when it's by Mozart, wow, this must be something really beautiful. And, and if I like it, it also shows my taste in music. But if I said just a six-year-old made it, you'd be like, oh, okay, it's maybe cute, but it's not good music. And so an example they show is this wasn't really a study, but something that was done a few years ago where a very famous violinist named Joshua Bell went to a busy subway station in Washington, D.C. and unannounced and in very plain looking clothes just started to play violin looking like a street performer, which we've all seen, whether it's on the streets, but especially like subways and places like that. You'll see a lot of street performers. And he was also playing 
uh, a violin that was $3.5 million, a Stradivarius, a very famous, uh, the only violin that I know of by name. There's, I think it was made several hundred years ago by someone with that name. But this one is worth $3.5 million. So there you are with this, one of the greatest violinists in the world, playing one of the most expensive violins in the world. And he was playing some of the most difficult pieces to play. But with all these busy uh, commuters going past him, very few stopped to actually listen or really gave much attention to it. One of whom was someone who had just seen him in concert like the week before, so she recognized him. But no one else really realized that this was world-class, incredible music that they were lucky to be listening to because of the value attribution. Okay, he's just some street performer. He's not something special. And so we do this all the time. Uh, you know, if someone tells you this is expensive wine, you'll probably think it tastes better than if they tell you it's cheap wine. And there's another study they showed where one word can change so much. They were going to get a guest lecture, a bunch of college students, and everything in the description about him was the same, except half the students were told that he was warm and the other half were told he was kind of cold. And that was the only word that was different. And then they were asked to rate the professor or the guest speaker afterwards and there was huge changes in how they rated him just based on that one word. And this happens in our lives as well. If you're a f with a friend and they say, oh, that's one of my buddies over there. Let me call him over. And before the guy comes over, they say, oh, you know, this guy's really a jerk and no one really likes him. Or if they say, you know, this guy's such a nice, fun guy and really everyone likes him. When that person comes, it's going to absolutely affect how you interact with them. You know, if they make a joke, when you were told he was a mean guy, like, gosh, there he is being so mean saying mean things. He's so unkind. But if they tell you he's really nice and fun, and then he makes that joke, like, oh, yeah, this guy's such a good time. He's so funny and fun, and you'll probably like him. So as much as we'd like to think that we won't be affected by these things, um, where we see someone or what people tell them, you know, we'd like to think, I make my own decisions. I am objective, and I see what's going on, and I take in the information, I make a judgment, or I make uh, a valued judgment or decision. That's not the case. We're all affected by these things. And we're a lot more, uh, you can call it irrational or you can call it emotional or you can call it whatever you want, but we're not just these purely rational robots who take in information and, and make a decision or come to some kind of conclusion. And related to this idea of value attribution, there's also a diagnosis bias, which doctors have to be aware of, especially psychologists. If you're seeing a client and you within a few minutes make a decision, this person has bipolar disorder it's very hard for you to break that. Primarily also, you don't want to be wrong. Kind of in a way, you can go back to the loss aversion, but in this case, more about it's an attack maybe to your personal character, especially as a professional, that I'm not good at what I'm doing or I'm not getting it right. We all like to be right, even if all the information is t telling us maybe we're wrong. But we find that psychologists do have a hard time with this. They can make an initial diagnosis in their head or come to that conclusion. And then if they get a lot of information that disconfirms what they're saying, they tend to ignore it and only seek out the information that confirms it. And so we can also talk about the confirmation bias, this idea that we look for information that confirms what we already think or believe. And psychologists are not immune to this and they have to be careful. And that's why actually they say you should wait to make those conclusions. It's okay to suspend your judgment. It's actually better to suspend your judgment and say, I don't know yet, rather than think I have to make a conclusion now. That can get you in a lot of trouble. Another interesting topic they talk about looking at 
uh, sway is the idea of dissent, meaning disagreement, which, which is really important because although it can be annoying or uncomfortable when someone disagrees with us or if in a group someone disagrees, it can be really, really valuable to have that. We need to have that. So they talk about a very classic psychology study, one that was done by Solomon Ash, where they had people, they were told they were doing a visual acuity test, basically a test to, to measure vision. And they were sitting in a room, eight people in total, and everyone thought that they were just there in the same way. But really there was only one person they were looking at. And that was the person at the end. The other seven people were actually in on the experiment. We call them confederates. So they knew what was going on and they were basically playing a role. And the only one really being studied with that was that last person. So what they had to do was they were shown three lines of different lengths. And then they were supposed to say which line that they were then showed most closely matched one of those three lines or which one of those three lines closely matched that. So there's A, B, and C of different lengths. And now you're presented a new line and you're supposed to say, which one is it closest to, A, B, or C? Now, what they did was, on a lot of the trials, the other seven people would give the wrong answer. So imagine you're looking, and it's very obvious that line B is the same length as the line you're looking at, but everyone is saying C, next person, C, C, C. And then it comes to you, and you're asked to give your answer. Now, again, listening to me talk right now, you probably just think, oh, I wouldn't be... I wouldn't care what people say. I would just look at what I see and I would give the right answer. I wouldn't think to change my answer. But more than likely, that's not the case because the majority of the people did give a wrong answer. Actually, 75% of participants gave at least one wrong answer. So only one-fourth of people never gave a wrong answer. So we see that when we're faced with this uh, evidence that people are telling us one thing, we tend to conform. We don't want to disagree or we sometimes assume maybe they know something I don't. There could be a lot of factors at play, but overall we do conform and we don't like to disagree. Now what's interesting is when they did other versions of the study, they found that even if just one person didn't agree with the rest of the group, that would make a difference. So if you heard C, 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 one person said B, then when it came to that person, almost everyone now went with the right answer. Because what they found is, only 1% of the time can people not really tell. So almost always they can tell. So only one person saying, I disagree with the rest of the group, allowed for that person to then give that right answer. Even more interesting is that when they had the person giving the different answer give another wrong answer, that opened the door for the person to then say what they really felt. And that's what we see when you're in a group and everyone is just agreeing and saying, yes, yes, we see it this way, we see it this way, we see it this way. It's very hard to be that first person to say, I disagree. I see it differently. People roll their eyes. They get upset with you. They go, oh, here you go again. But once that person does that, it actually allows for other people to then be more comfortable to say what they want to say and to disagree openly and to share their perspective. They didn't talk about groupthink in this book. But that's something that's related to this idea of when we're afraid to dissent or to disagree. Everyone in a group can agree and it feels good and there's this cohesion that people feel good about, that they're not disagreeing and we're all on the same page. And there's this strong feeling not to disagree. But unfortunately, when we get into that type of situation, we are prone to making really bad decisions and ignoring very important information. So what we want is we want someone to disagree with us. Even we should ask for it. 
we should say, you know what, I want someone to tell me what's wrong with my idea. Not everyone just nod their heads and say, okay, let's go forward. Because if we do that, we might be missing something really important. So I thought that chapter was really interesting, telling this idea again that disagreement is good. We need to disagree to really make sure we're looking at what's going on. It's very dangerous just to assume everyone's on the same page or be afraid to disagree. So if you're that person who uh, might see things a little bit differently, don't be afraid to voice your opinion. Now, there's some people that like to disagree because they want to disagree. That's different. We're talking about genuinely sharing your opinion when it is different from what the majority of the people are saying because you want to make sure all perspectives are seen and you come to the best decision possible. I talked about this with John F. Kennedy and the Cuba Missile Crisis and how he felt in the Bay of Pigs disaster he didn't do that. But in, when it came to the Cuban Missile Crisis, he would actually ask, I think it was his brother, to go outside uh, and then come back in and just basically challenge everything he was saying. Just say, uh, be the devil's advocate, essentially, of what he was saying to make sure he was looking at everything from a balanced perspective and not just getting sucked into his own logic or what was going on in his mind. So the power of dissent, I found that that chapter was really interesting in this book. So, you know, this book, it was nice looking at these different uh, ways that we can be quote-unquote irrational. The reason why I say quote-unquote is because what does that really mean? Um, what does rational mean? When you're in a relationship acting rationally, what does that mean? Your emotions matter too. So we have to take everything into account. But nonetheless, it did give me um, some perspectives on how we do things or why we do things. And like I said before, if you think you do everything rationally or you think you know why you're doing everything you do, think again or think a little bit more deeply and you might recognize that although you think you know what you're doing or why you're doing what you're doing, very often that's not the case. And if we take a closer look, you might get an idea of what's underneath and what might explain better what you're doing. So that was Sway by Ori and Ron Braffman. Again, the book for this week is The Science of Sin by Simon Laham. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hello, Dr. Farid. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you so much. I've prepared a little summary of my question. Okay, that sounds good. Let's go ahead. First of all, before you, maybe that's part of your summary, but how old are you? I'm 19 years old. 19 years old. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I'm a second year student currently at a four year university, mm -hmm. and my major is biology. So ever since high school, I wanted or had interest to do engineering because I love math and technology. My family, however, suggests I be a doctor because it helps people and has the highest average salary. Even if I switch to engineering, though, I don't know which to choose, computer, automotive, or civil. And um, how do I choose the best career for me? And how can I be confident in my decisions? Do I not worry about my choice? 
uh, as I have been for the past few years. Hmm. Okay. Uh, very nice, prepared statement. Thank you. That did give me a lot of important information. Um, already in hearing what you, you said, I have issue with your parents' involvement in what you decide to do because um, they said it helps people and it makes a lot of money or makes the most money starting salary or whatever it is or average salary. Um, you can help people in doing a lot of different fields. As an engineer, you can help people too. Now, as a doctor, you might help them more on a interactive one-on-one -on -one basis and it really, you know, that does help. But an engineer can help things and makes the society better and safer and lots of different things. So I wouldn't say as an engineer, you can't help people or maybe help society or help, you know, make the world a better place. I don't agree with that at all. It's not just that by one-on-one -on -one interactions, we help people. So that part, I don't agree with financially. It's possible that, yes, I don't know the averages, um, but that's not something that I'd want you to base your decision off of. I would want you to find a career where you can be financially independent and stable and get to a place that you feel good about. But I wouldn't say, well, because this career makes the most money, you should do that. To me, that's not the reason to make that decision. Um, so to begin with, that's the first thing that stood out based on what you said, that your parents were, were picking your career for you on with uh, using qualities or characteristics that they thought were the most important. But the most important one to me is what you feel passionate about, what you feel you're good at and are your skills, what you enjoy doing, and what you really feel like your unique gift to the world is. Not um, do this because it helps people. You can help people doing virtually any career, any path you take. I think your focus for anyone should be how am I going to help the world be a better place? How am I going to make a positive impact on society and people around me? So to me, that's not limited to a few careers. Does that make sense? Yes, doctor. But it's also very hard for me to determine what is my passion. Yeah. Because, yeah. Well, I can, you know, I can imagine with, if your parents, you know, I don't want to quickly judge them just in the previous segment, I talked about not judging too quickly. So I'll try not to do that. But when we don't give our our kids and as they grow up the space to think for themselves freely and to feel what they're feeling and, and to really get to know themselves and what they want, it becomes very hard for them. So my guess is you really didn't feel you had the space to, to choose for yourself or to really think clearly and openly because your parents were going to be judgmental about the choices you made, or they were going to try to make them for you. So you didn't have that opportunity to listen to that voice inside because there was too many voices outside that were telling you things. Yes, you're correct. Um, it's, it's very confusing and uh, it gives me a lot of anxiety because mm -hmm. I, I, I can't listen to my own voice. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing, you know, you said, you know, another aspect of you said, I can't listen. What happens when parents are saying too much telling their kids from a young age do this don't do this this is good this is bad never do this you should always do this um you get afraid to trust it or you don't even or i mean to listen or you're, you don't trust your own voice because your parents have doubted it so much that it makes you doubt it but the most important thing even i can't tell you what to study you know we can talk and, and maybe i can guide you but at the end it's going to be your decision and you're going to have to be listening to what you want uh, to do, and I think that's the biggest issue I hear in what you're saying is that you maybe are afraid to even look at that honestly, 
because if you get to that conclusion, you know what, I want to switch majors, you're, you're a little bit concerned about telling your parents. So you might even tell yourself, I'm not even sure what I want, so it's okay, let me just do this because it's good. But I would never want you to do that. I wouldn't want you to, I would want you to look carefully to see what you really want. So what kind of steps could you recommend for me? Um, like even if I switch into engineering, mm -hmm. I don't know which to switch into, like computer, automotive, or civil engineering. And mm -hmm. so even even the switching process is complicated because I don't know which one to choose. And just the uh, choice makes me paralyzed, and so I just prefer to keep going with what I right. am already doing. Well, yeah, it seems that it makes you anxious to make that choice, and it seems like you, you might be indecisive in some ways and you might doubt your choice. So it's easier. See, by not switching, at least you don't have to risk being wrong, which is, I think, what you're afraid of. That if you yeah. make the wrong choice, that's bad. Why don't I just stay with something that's okay and not, I can't get blamed for something if I don't try something. So uh, that, again, I think can come back from the feeling your parents have possibly given you that it, it, don't make mistakes, don't do it wrong, just do the right thing or what we think is right. So it's a lot easier. So uh, first and foremost, before we even say what type of engineering, do you like the idea of becoming a doctor? Or is that something that you really feel passionate about, that you want to do, that you feel like your skills and abilities are really um, utilized in that career? Does that seem like the right choice for you? Uh, so I guess on the inside, I, I like that, but... I've always wanted to be an inventor, like Steve Jobs or like Elon Musk, the mm -hmm. founders of, of big tech companies. Those are the people who really fascinate uh, me or like the people in charge of constructing large airports or building the computer or making um, just like a huge impact. But I'm worried that that's too idealistic and not reflective of reality. Well, you know, yeah, there, we have to be aware that you know, of course, everyone who wants to go in those fields wants to be Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, but almost none, no one will uh, be those people. So if your expectation is that I want to be Elon Musk or nothing, if I become an engineer, then I would say that's a very risky decision to make. But if you tell me you enjoy engineering and building and designing things and mathematics and you find those things fascinating, then it could be the right decision. So do you feel like, what about engineering appeals to you? I think it's just designing something, um, using math, uh, modeling, and, and, and ending up creating something at the very end. Uh-huh. Now, I want to actually, I realize I kind of maybe got ahead of us myself. Um, going back to being a doctor, what about being a doctor do you like? I like the science behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, like right now, my, like the courses in biochemistry I take, well, I've learned so much just about the human body and how complicated chemical system it is. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the human body interests you. Um, that's good. Do you like the idea of working with patients? Uh, what, what about that? Did you like that interactive? Are you more of a people person or do you like more being alone? and doing things on your own? I think I like both. Okay. So that's why it's hard for me to differentiate. Yeah, sure. Um, so when it comes to choosing, the choice when you look back on it, do you feel like you did make it yourself, or 
the choice was more made by your parents and you went along with it? That one is hard for me to say. I mm-hmm. feel like it may be 50-50. 50-50. Okay. Now, we want to make it more 100-0 with the 100 coming from you. And so I want you to really, when you think about this idea of what you want to do, essentially assume you're starting from scratch. And by that, I mean, don't think, well, I'm in my second year. I've already done one year of this. Uh, maybe it you know, costs money to go to school or I've already invested this time. We, we want to assume nothing's happened, especially at your age of 19. There's no reason to uh, decide not to go down any path you want, even if you have to go back and start at square one. Does that make sense? Thank you for pointing that out because that's one of the fears I have, the money and the time that I've lost so far. Yeah. And yes, those are real things. Um, But especially when it comes to time, my guess is you've taken a lot of general classes anyway. But even if you didn't, I want you to think that this is going to be something that you're going to do for 40, 50 years of your life. So one year on this end to me is virtually meaningless in the grand scheme. And actually, it goes back to when I was talking about the book Sway. You know, we can talk about loss aversion. We don't like to lose. So we say, well, I don't want to lose that year or that money. Or maybe you feel like it makes you like you wasted it or, you know, you've been a burden on your family or something like that. But you're going to be a far bigger burden if you do a career they want you to do that's not the one you want to do. Uh, Especially later on, you're going to resent them more and more. It's going to affect even your relationship with them. You're not going to be as happy and all sorts of negative consequences. So the costs are going to be far greater if you don't do what you really want to do than the one year of time and the tuition costs that you've given up in the time. Okay, that's a good point. Thank you, Doctor. Sure. So I really want you to think about this as if you're picking your major today as a high school senior and there's no nothing else limiting you. It's just you and what you want to do, okay? Okay, got it. Thank you. Sure. So in your heart of hearts, when you think about it, what do you feel like is is your right path, the thing that you'd like to do? Even still, I I just don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm doing some investigation, like going to maybe a career fair this week and Mm -hmm. um, seeing what kind of engineering I like the most. But yeah, there's four careers that I have in my in my eyes. Okay, let's and hear it. The, yeah, it was uh, like a com- being a computer engineer, mm-hmm. civil engineer, working in the automotive uh, industry, or being a surgeon. Being a surgeon, okay. Very, those are all, all very good careers. You know, another thing in, as far as your investigation, going to the career fair could be good. I would also say talk to people who are in the careers that you're interested in. Because they can, if you, for example, if you know a surgeon, family, friend, somehow you can get in contact, see if you can let them know I'm considering this career path. Would you be willing to meet me for lunch and talk about what you do? I really want to understand it better. And also with those three types of engineers, if you can find people, that can be a really good way to, to better understand what it's like to be in that career. Because sometimes we can have some misconceptions of what it's like to be whatever that you know career goal we have, we idealize it or we've seen something in TV or movies or just imagine it's a certain way. But talking to someone can give us a better idea of what it's actually like. And many people have asked me to have those kind of conversations with them about being a therapist or psychologist. And I'm very happy to meet with people when I can to talk about that because I, I know how important it is. And I wasn't sure myself at one time. 
And, and it can be very eye-opening to talk to someone who's really doing the work rather than um, just imagining what it's like, if that makes okay, sense. Okay, yeah. So that makes sense to me. Um, and, like, maybe you could advise on this, too. Mm-hmm. How do you know when you're quitting or when when you're quitting for the right reason or when you're quitting because you're just tired? Uh-huh. Good question. You know what? Let's talk about that after the break. So just hold on, and we're going to talk after the break about this issue, okay? Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We will be right back. Back before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to him. Radio Hamra, you're still there? Hi, Dr. Ferry. Hi. All right. Thank you uh, for holding on. We're talking about uh, you were thinking or considering switching majors from uh, biology and being pre-med to some kind of engineering, and you're not sure what you wanted to do. But right before the break, you asked about the difference between quitting and giving up. Okay. Now, is uh, that what you're thinking, or I guess quitting or changing and giving up? Is that what you're thinking about when it comes to changing from medicine, or where do you where are you considering this? Um, yes, changing from medicine because um, a lot of people say there's a statistic out there that a lot of people come into the university thinking that they want to be a doctor, mm-hmm. and then they change their mind or drop. Right. And usually there's a negative connotation mm-hmm. uh, behind this. They say, oh, they were not strong enough to become a doctor. Yeah. Now, there's obviously some truth to that, and becoming a doctor is not easy. So it is hard, and a lot of people, I'm sure, do stop because they can't really cut it or they couldn't do the work. Although I think a doctor's intelligence is going to be higher than average, my guess would be, but it doesn't mean you have to be incredibly smart to become a doctor. I think it's more about working very, very, very hard to become a doctor, just like it is the case for a lot of different careers as well. Um, So although it might be true that a lot of people give up because it's too hard for them or they don't want to work that hard, that doesn't mean that's necessarily the case for you. So you can't, I don't want you to hear a statistic like that and then lump everyone who makes a decision Uh, to say that they're doing it for the same reason. And I definitely wouldn't want you to stay in a career you wouldn't want to do just because you don't want there to potentially be some stigma attached to the fact that you switched from being pre-med. Actually, I I didn't even think of this still right now. I was pre-med for about a year myself. And then I switched uh, once I took a psychology class. And I actually, my whole life thought I was going to be a doctor uh, from a young age. And I also remember feeling that, you know, you go to a Persian dinner party or you're around family and they say, what are you going to do when you grow up? And you say, doctor, and everyone say, oh, good, that's so great, wonderful, you're going to be good. And they, they make you feel so good about it. And you're like, well, I should just keep saying this. And you kind of start to own it. And I really do think some of it came from me too. But I remember that implicit pressure, even if it wasn't direct pressure from people around, around me. But once I took a psychology class, I realized this was really more my calling and I connected to it much more. And I switched, and I one of the best decisions I ever made because I, I think I could have made maybe a fine doctor, and I would have enjoyed that too. But 
I definitely see that psychology was more my calling and more aligned with who I am, my personality, um, you know, the way, what I like to do, and I enjoy what I do every single day. So I'm so happy for that decision. And if someone wanted to put me in that statistic or say it was because I couldn't cut it, that's fine for them to think that. What's important was I, is what I think. And then talking to you, what's important is what you think. If you think you're going to judge yourself for that, I hope you wouldn't especially if you're doing it for the right reasons. Now, if you were just switching majors because you said, you know what, uh, this is kind of hard, and then you switched, and then you told me, well, after a year of engineering, I said, this is kind of hard, and I switched to something else, well, then we'd have a concern that it might not be about not liking it or it not being your passion, but more about some issue of really pushing yourself or working hard or something else. But you haven't mentioned anything about that. How have you done so far in your classes in, as a pre-med student? Doctor, I've done very well because okay. I spend lots of time studying. Okay. So it doesn't seem like that's the issue. Now, maybe you say you spend a lot of time studying. Do you feel like it's getting to you, like you feel burnt out from studying so much? Uh, no, because I I kind of enjoy studying um, the okay. library and the quietness. Uh, but one thing I struggle with is um, every weekend I, I go home because I miss my parents so much. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that's that's difficult for me to manage. I don't like being um, independent. Yeah. How far do you live from home? Seventy miles. Seventy miles. Okay, so it takes you like maybe I, I don't know if you live in LA. Seventy miles is like five hours, but it depends on where you live. Seventy miles, how long that is. Um, but you know, you said I don't want to be independent, which is interesting, because I believe that in one way on the surface, but I think deep down, all of us want to be independent are it's a, a drive that we have is to be and by independent doesn't mean we don't uh rely on other people or don't get involved with other people or relate to other people really we want to be interdependent meaning that i can stand on my own but i also choose to work with others and be with others um, but the reason why i think when you say i don't want to be independent i'm sure your parents also don't want you to be independent or maybe they might say they want you to be but in a way they might pull you how how do you feel your parents are when it comes to you being away. Do they want you at home? Do they want you home every weekend? Um, no, they don't necessarily. They get happily. They get happy just as I do when I go mm -hmm, home. Mm -hmm. But they um, they also want me to be able to uh, be on my own as well. Yeah. How's your your social life back home, but especially at school? In high school, I had two really good friends. Mm -hmm. uh, here at university, I just have many acquaintances. Um, no really relationships here. Hmm. Okay. So it's been harder for you to create more meaningful, closer relationships at school, at university. Correct. Okay. What, what do you think that's from? I'm not sure, but I think it's just because maybe everyone's so busy, focused on their goals, mm -hmm. um, and I haven't found maybe somebody who aligns exactly with my thinking, maybe. Well, I mean, that could be some of it, but, you know, if it's because everyone's busy, that's going to be the case for everyone, so then everyone would have an equally hard time as you. So we're probably going to say it's not just that, and no one is necessarily going to align perfectly with you, of course being similar is going to be important both for dating and also friendships but there probably is more to it than that do you feel like you can relate to students well like the, you know people your age 
I just feel like I spend so much time thinking about and focusing on my courses, mm -hmm. and then when I go home on the weekends, that leaves me no time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the the going home every weekend to me kind of sounds like a comfort zone for you, that you rather than staying and and making attempts to be more social at school, you choose the the safe cocoon of going back home. And I'm sure it's more complicated than just you wanting it. Probably your parents maybe indirectly might want it or maybe you feel like that's what they want, even if they don't tell you. But I think you going back home is, is really hurting you in the long term. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when you say you go home, you said because you miss your parents? Right. Okay. Let me ask you another question. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a sister. How old is she? She is... 29. 29. Okay. And it's just the two of you? Right. Okay. So a pretty sizable age difference when you were born. Um, she was about 10. Mm -hmm. Okay. How close? Is she at home? Um, no, she lives in another state. Okay. All right. So she, she got away. So, and by got away, I mean she moved away. But you, it seems like you're much more connected to your family because she moved and you're still there. Although I know she's older than you. How long ago did she move? Uh, well, because after she pursued her studies and then her doctorate and then her now her career, so she's been gone for like ten years. Okay, so she's been gone for a while. So that's what I mean. She she left young, like you know, per, the same age you are now. It sounds like, um, but it seems like you're much more connected or too connected with your family. It seems like there's a, a dependence that you have on them. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like you want to be a in independent you think you're afraid to be independent what do you think it is that keeps you from that well i just feel like i want to have the career but i also always want to live close to my parents so that i can enjoy um being with them because they are like my friends hmm. okay and I'm, I'm okay with them being like friends to you and having that closeness my concern is the the almost lack of friends outside of that. So you, being close with your parents is not itself bad, but when there isn't a lot else in your social life, that's my concern. That, you know, do you feel a loneliness when you're at school? Do you want more friendships or are you okay with how it is? To be honest, I'm okay with how it is um, because I still interact with my teachers and, and um, things like that. Okay. So, I mean, again, it seems like with adults, it's easier for you to interact than with peers. Yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable to say. Yeah, because you're saying your parents and then with the professors, but then with other students, it seems like it's harder for you to connect. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I know you're saying you get enough from that and there's no exact right amount of social interaction that is correct, but I do get the feeling that something is missing there that the social life and the socializing and the connecting with your age group is not where it needs to be. It could be maybe you are focused on other things than they are. Even the way you talk is much more polite in a way, and I know we're on the air, but even still there's a difference in how you talk to me than I think most people your age talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, do, you, do you feel like that's the case? Um. Maybe. I'm also a little bit nervous. Sure. So maybe that's why. I can understand. Yeah, that's fine. I know you had written out what you wanted to say 
maybe that would that helped with the nerves too and maybe so i'm hearing you obviously not how you are in your most comfortable um you know when you're the most comfortable but still there's something i get in the way that you are communicating that might be a little bit different so that's i'm not sure what it is but i hope you can connect more with your peers and even i would encourage you to you know almost put a pressure on yourself by not going home every weekend to to do that because there is this this feeling of dependence i'm getting in what you're talking about and dependence really goes both ways i i put more of it on your parents because they're more uh, responsible for creating the relationship however it's up to you to decide what to do with it now so okay. you know when it comes to that i think that's very important for you to to recognize the the necessity for you to separate from them it seems like you're too connected to them again i want you to to love them and see them as friends in a way and all of that but when there isn't space for you to be yourself that's a problem this even relates to the issue you called with about choosing your major that when you're in your head there's also two other people in your head too and that doesn't work you have to be thinking on your own and feeling on your own and then deciding on your own but if you put them in there that's going to be a problem and the way you're saying you're so close to them well then of course you're going to be even more concerned about letting them down or not doing what they want and it's going to make it even harder for you to just do what you want to do so these issues are definitely related you um, deciding what you want to do on your own and a decision that maybe your parents don't like and also your uh, dependence on your parents they're definitely going to overlap because you're really afraid to look at who you really are and what you want if it's something that they don't want you know you might not want to let them down so I, I would take some time to look at that and i'm always a big proponent of therapy for everyone to just get some clarity on what's going on so if you've never gone it might not be a bad idea even just for your major because uh, therapy is a lot about self-awareness and getting more in touch with yourself. So you might figure out what's going on for you. But also this dependency issue, I think, is is concerning for me because I, I think it's not allowing you to be your own person in always what you choose to do, but also how you're living your life. So I would really think about that. I do have to wrap up the show. I appreciated that you called. Maybe call back again soon. Think about things a little bit. Look into it and give me a call and we can talk some more. But make sure what you decide is what you want. And that's going to be hard when you're so close with your parents the way you are right now. Thank you, Doctor. Sure. I will really listen to your point. Okay, good. Good luck with everything. Hope to hear from you soon. All right. Thank All right, you, Take doctor. care. Good night. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to our caller there and the listeners and to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fanny Delacqui. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.